Welcome to Scrappy, the podcast about small companies doing big things. I'm your host, Chris Stragus. We've been working hard to collect stories and interviews for our second season. But in light of all the recent changes we've been going through, from politics to pandemics to protests, we've decided to change things up a bit. Instead of waiting to launch a whole new season that would run over just 10 short weeks, we are instead going to let loose a new episode continuously each month or so, and in that way get more great stories out more often. And I couldn't think of a better place to start this season than a big anniversary that our country has coming up this weekend. One you may not even be aware of. 30 years ago, on July 26, 1990, President George H.W. Bush signed into law the Americans with Disabilities Act. This groundbreaking legislation was the world's first comprehensive civil rights law for people with disabilities. It would usher in a new era of rights, freedoms, and care for one of our nation's greatest untapped citizen resources. And it would bring into the fold an entire segment of our society that had, for too long, been marginalized, stigmatized, and second-classed. But 1990 was not the end of this work. Really, it was just the beginning. And today, the work continues with more momentum than ever before and with a new era of advocates on the front lines. Advocates like Deborah Rue. My name is Deborah Rue, and I'm the CEO and founder of Rue Global Impact. Deborah is kind of an unexpected hero in this fight. In the mid-1980s, she was nurturing a successful career in the banking industry and looking forward to starting a family. But in 1987, her path took an unexpected turn after the birth of her daughter, Sarah. Before too long she found herself forging her own way, employing an internal drive to help those in need, a drive that had long been waiting just below the surface. Deborah, thank you for joining me today. There is so much that I look forward to learning about the work and um, advocacy that you've been doing for two decades now. But if we could, I want to start just a bit earlier. Um, a young Deborah Rue was just coming of age in the turmoil of the late 60s and early 70s. How would the Deborah of today describe that time and that little girl growing up in the Deep South? Oh, that's a great, great question, Chris. And thank you so much for having me on your show. I, I really like your podcast. I, I am a baby boomer and I'm the um, later part of the baby boomers. And so I, the, the Vietnam War was going on, all and all the protests were going on, and the, the hippie movements and burning the bras, and a lot of that was happening when I was in elementary school in the beginning of, um, of getting into the middle school. Even then, there was a lot of fighting about uh, truly including um, African Americans in our society, and why were we segre segregating everyone? And um, so there was a lot of turmoil, and there was a lot of turmoil, unfortunately, in my family because my mother really, really struggled with um, mental health issues, and she was diagnosed as borderline personality disorder, which is a it's a really, really tough one. And she did she did the very best she could. And I 
I understand that as an adult, but as a child, as a child, we just, you never knew what was gonna happen from moment to moment, day to day. It, it was very turbulent inside the house. And so the outside world was just some other place that I didn't completely understand, but it seemed like there was a lot of turmoil happening out there as well. In the midst of all that, though, by the mid-70s, you were at the precipice of adulthood um, and you were ready to sort of shape your future. What what did you want to be when you grew up? Well, I wanted to be I really wanted to be a journalist, even though I wasn't a great writer, but I, it, I wanted to be a journalist. And then I thought, oh, I'm going to. No, I think I'm going to be a police officer because police officers, you know, help people and save the world. But I remember my father saying to me, no, you, you can't be a police officer, Deborah. You, you won't be able to handle it. Your heart is too tender. It'll crush you. And so I, then I remember moving more to, okay, I want to be a psychiatrist. So I knew, I always knew I wanted to help people. I knew I wanted to make a difference. But at the same time, I was never encouraged to go to school or go to college. My family didn't have a lot of money, so it was never, ever anything we talked about. We weren't really encouraged to think about what's your career and where you're going to go. My, both of my parents retired. They worked their whole life and retired from AT&T. And when, when I graduated from high school, I graduated in 77, and um, my mom got me a job at AT&T. I was an overseas operator. So I was in that, you see them in the shows, the big switchboards and people are plugging in the wires and stuff. I made really good money. That time, I was making um, $35,000 a year plus expenses, which was great money. And I hated every single second of it. So after I did it for a year, um, I thought, I I'm not doing this. And I quit <laughs> and I became a waitress and I started working my way through college. But everybody was shocked, especially my mom. And she was so mad at me when I quit this really good job. But I just didn't want to spend my whole life doing that. And so I, I guess I was a little bit of a renegade. <laughs> you were in the mid 80s. You're in your mid to late 20s. You're making good money before you quit. You met, where did you meet your husband and when did you get married? I met him in the restaurant business. So when I quit AT&T, I went and started working at a restaurant. It's not around anymore, but some people might remember it was called Victoria Station. Mm -hmm. And they had the best prime rib. It was the best prime rib. And it was modeled after um, the Victoria Station cars. And so they actually would have a train, uh, part of a train um, as part of the restaurant. I, I remember the first time I met my husband when he had just moved there from Atlanta. I loved that he had such a gentleness about him and he felt very, very safe to me. And so that was very, very attractive. Somebody that seemed so stable and calm and, and gentle. And he is still that same way. We've been married um, 38 years in September. Um, unfortunately, my husband now has early onset dementia because when he was a child, when he was 11 years old, he was just getting a kite going. And if any of us, anybody that's ever gotten a kite, you finally get it going and the air's lifted and it's lifting up, you know, it's flying and he was running with it and he, he ran in front of a car and the car hit him. 
he he was 11. It threw him 750 feet. He actually died on the scene. Um, they brought him back. They took him to the hospital. He was in a coma for a couple of weeks, and then he didn't go back to school for months. And when he did go back to school, things were different for him. He used to be a straight A student, and he was then, you know, a, a medium student. And so. Unfortunately, even though we have these amazing brains that rewire and figure out how to work around an injury, his brain was still very, very seriously injured. And so as he aged, the, um, the brain has aged into dementia. And that's, that's been a very interesting um, you know, path um, at the same time. But he still grew up, got married, had two children, worked, you know, in telecommunications. And um, so there was a su success story, but it's just now it's, it's so hard for him. It's very hard for him. And it's been hard for all of us. But there's also beauty in it. There's a very interesting beauty in this, this, this trip too, this journey. Because my husband that was always there and gentle and kind and happy, um, not quite as high strung as his wife, <laughs> he, he's still there. Yeah. But he's lost a lot of processing abilities. But the soul, the person that he that I fell in love with is still there. He still knows me. He still thinks I'm great. He's still, you know, he, he's so patient with me, but so it's interesting walking this because the person that makes him so important to me is still there. Yeah. So again, we're going to, I'm, I'm trusting my math here. So you'll correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> uh, on a, on a beautiful Easter day, I believe in 1987, yes. You gave yes. birth to a daughter, Sarah. Yes. Um, as as happens to anyone on their first child, and I can speak from experience, there's a seismic shift. There's yeah. um, there's a beauty and optimism for life and future mixed, though, with an absolute fear of not knowing what actually being a parent really means. Um, right. I'm sure that like anyone else, you get that uh, vision in your mind of a healthy, happy child growing up to be a productive, successful adult. It can be a really magical time. But in just a few short months, before you even settled down from that first seismic event, an even bigger one was about to hit, one that um, literally changed the course of your life. So yeah. can you tell me a little bit about the moment when everything changed for you? Yes, and thank you for asking. I, I wanted to have kids so bad. I, I was just one of those little girls that always wanted to have kids. Um, and so when my husband and I got married when I was 23, uh, we started trying and, and we, and, and nothing happened, but we would try, then we would, we try and we wouldn't. And then when I was 28, I became pregnant. And I remember being just so excited that I was pregnant. And then as you said, Chris, and then I thought, oh, wait a minute. I don't think we're qualified yet. So, but at that point, welcome. So when my daughter was actually born, I had this weird little thought float through my mind. And is when this thought floated through my mind and I'll say the thought, the thought was, wow, she looks like a little baby with Down syndrome. And immediately I thought, what? I, what did, I don't even know what a baby with Down syndrome looks like. So I dismissed it. Four months later, um, the doctors were finding that she was having what they called failure to thrive, my beautiful, perfect little four-month-old uh, baby. And 
one doctor started suspecting it was there was more and they did the test and realized that she had down syndrome and they called my husband and I and this is a call that you know is not going to go well I remember I was at work and I was working in telecommunications at a bank and I get a call from the doctor's office and they said the doctor wants to see you and your husband today at two so my husband and I went in and they told us that Sarah had Down syndrome and they used the word Mongolism, which is no longer appropriate. They they made comments about, you know, you could put her in an institution and um, yeah, uh, that's not gonna happen. And I just, and, and what I, the first thing I blurted out was, well, I'm not telling my mother. <laughs> and the doctor said, Deborah, you cannot hide that your daughter has Down syndrome. Oh yeah, you want to see? So yes, I can. But it, it's just, it it really did just you know change our world. And I didn't think I knew anybody with a disability, which of course I learned that's ridiculous. But she, I also had the gift that I already knew this this little girl. I she had been you know born four months before, and she was so sweet and she was so loving, and she was just just she was a great little baby she still is a great woman but um but at the same time i did have to walk the steps denial i'm not going to tell anybody i i remember i drove one day through a um through fast food i remember it was the hardy's and the real sweet little teenager that was behind the window um as i drove up to get my my drink and food she leaned out of the window and she said, oh, your baby's so cute, does she have Down syndrome? Oh, she's so beautiful, my brother has Down syndrome. And I felt like that, that teenager had stabbed me in the heart. I didn't want people to know my daughter had Down syndrome. I didn't want him to, I was still in that part of the journey. So it, it was, you know, it, it, life, life gives you lots of opportunities to grow. <laughs> With the lessons you were learning in through the early years of Sarah's life, by let's say by the nineties, she's she's growing up and beginning to come of age, just like that young Deborah back in the nineteen seventies Gainesville. Um, but yeah. the times obviously are very different at this point, and uh, so are young Sarah's circumstances. Obviously, what kind of unexpected challenges did you face, not just at home but in society at large? The first thing I really hated right at the beginning from the moment we found out on was how much people underestimated Sarah and how much people would learn that I that I had a daughter with Down syndrome and they would say, oh, we're so sorry. It was such a tragedy. And I thought, well, why why is this such a tragedy? She's a really cool kid and she's funny and she's creative and she's it was a real smart aleck and there was so many interesting things about her and I didn't understand why society couldn't see there wasn't any information on how to raise her, what to expect. There, you know, we were we were putting in her in early education um, and trying to give her advantages, but you were on your own unless you wanted to read the dark, dark, dark literature that was out at the time about people with Mongolism and all the, it, it was just that they die really young. And the data that was out was all based on when we took babies and we put them in institutions. It, I didn't have any support 
to go. You know, people just didn't understand the journey. And I hope, I hope that's better for parents now. I know that I've tried to be one of the leaders out there with information, but it was very, you were alone. You just felt very alone. Well, you, you had mentioned Sarah's personality and, and I, I have to expect that she gets her, uh, a lot of her personality traits and specifically her optimism uh, and resilience from, from you as well. I, I saw a story about how she um, made some friends on a bus ride to school. <laughs> I know. That's a great story. I live in rural Virginia, and my kids had a really long bus drive to school. And But I worked full-time at the bank, and my husband worked at Capital One, and so we we didn't have the luxury of being able to drive them to school or anything. So a couple of houses down, there were a couple of girls that lived there. And so they would get on the bus and Sarah said to them one day, um, Hey, hi, can I be your friend? And the little girl said, no, we don't want to be your friend. And Sarah's like, why? And her brother was on the bus and he was so mad. And some of the other kids were really mad too, that these little girls did this, but they said, no, we don't want to be your friend. So my daughter thought about it and everything. And so the next day, <laughs> the bus, on the bus, the little girls get on and Sarah's like, hey, can I be friends? And they're like, no. So Sarah did this to these little girls every single day for weeks. Finally, finally, the girls are like, fine, fine, we'll be your friend. Because there was also not only Sarah continuing to ask, but the peer pressure of all the other kids. Because the kids really treated Sarah like, they, she, they understood that you shouldn't be mean to her. Now, they were horrible to each other. My son, the, the, you know, he got bullied, and I'm sure they all dished it out themselves. But the kids, they didn't really bully Sarah. I mean, these little girls are like, I'm not going to be your friend. But she just wore them down. Fine, we'll be your friend. <laughs> Let's fast forward to 2000. Uh, the year 2000. The year opens with the world bracing for a technology meltdown with Y2K. <laughs> the year ends with the world learning the term hanging chad. So there's a lot going on. Yeah. But in your own life, your own life is, is about to irrevocably change course. How did you go from average citizen to advocate? When they first told us that Sarah had Down syndrome, I thought, how can I contribute? How can I contribute? And I couldn't really figure it out for a long time. And I was in the banking industry and I, you know, there was a project in um, our bank. They'd ask the managers, I was vice president, they asked the managers um, if you would hire some people with disabilities. And so I, I did do that. And so that was some ways I could, could contribute. And when we would do United Way or Easter Seals, or I could talk about how those organizations supported our family when we were walking this. But I wanted to do more. So when Sarah, um, she reached that middle school part. So she was in middle school and we had a conversation with her teachers and um, uh, the different uh, special ed experts and it was um, a meeting to talk about Sarah's future and so when I was in this meeting with all these experts and I'm just the mom and they are talking about pretty much Sarah won't be able to contribute anything to society in the future. She will not um, be welcome in the workforce and it's, you know, pretty much she'll be dependent on all of us for the rest of her life. 
And I thought, what? Have you even talked to my daughter? Can we have a conversation about what she wants to do? And she's so smart in her own way. And why do you think there's no room for her in society? And one of the people said, well, I guess what she could do is just bring shopping carts in from, you know, a Target or a Walmart. And I thought, really? That's the that's the stretch goal you have for my daughter. So at that moment, I woke up to really the plight that many people with disabilities walk, and I thought, I, I don't I don't think society should work that way. So so I decided I was going to create my own company. I'd never been somebody with a burning entrepreneurial desire to start a company. I never thought of myself as an entrepreneur. I really liked working for big corporations. So my identity was really wrapped up in working for big corporate America, but I thought, okay, I'm going to start my own business and I'm going to employ people with disabilities. So I created a company in 2001 called Tech Access. I love technology. My father was a technologist with AT&T and I just love technology. So I I thought okay, I'll be a technologist and I'll employ people with disabilities that are technologists and there was this law that had just um uh, been refreshed on the books, the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 and in 2001 we updated it and put a little bit more teeth in the section 508 part of the law saying that the United States government could not build, procure, buy any technology unless it was fully accessible to all citizens including citizens with disabilities. So we were working with websites but also software and hardware too to make sure it was fully accessible to people with disabilities and the majority of the team were people with disabilities so i had a huge advantage over my competitors because i was employing the people that they were trying to make technology accessible for. I had all these super talented employees with disabilities like there was a gentleman that worked for me that lived in the Virginia home um in Richmond Virginia so he was a quadriplegic and he he needed around the clock care I had a woman um who's actually still works for me at the new company um Rosemary that you know was born with cerebral palsy and Rosemary told me once that when she lies down flat she can only blink her eyes that's the control she has of her body but she's brilliant and she's a creative and imaginative she's just a really um amazing woman and so i learned so much by these individuals i also learned that um I remember one gentleman that worked for me he had very very severe uh, diabetes and he sustained multiple traumatic brain injuries and he said to me one time you know Deborah I know I'm not going to live as longer as long as my peers just because of these disabilities but I want to make a difference while I'm here and so I started realizing this is not just about you making a difference Deborah this is about you making sure that he and others have the limelight so they can their voices can be heard but the corporations weren't and I still often feel are not still seriously taking true disability inclusion and accessibility to heart it's still a compliance issue for them to check off my company tech access failed 
because of a bank we were with in Virginia. It was one of the first small business banks to fail because of the greed of the big banks. That's when I took the my company and I merged it in with another company that also was in the field and all of my employees got hired and got pay increases and so I lost a lot of money, some investors lost a lot of money, but I saved my employees with disabilities, which was very important to me at the time. So, but so I stayed with that company for about 18 months and it wasn't really my cup of tea. And so I went and created um, Rue Global Impact because I just didn't think anybody was telling the stories about, you know, yes, we need to be accessible and yes, we need to include people with disabilities, but why? What are the stories and and why is it important to these these corporations to do this and these organizations? It's not just for corporations. I mean, why should anyone care about these topics, accessibility and inclusion? I just felt that the stories needed to be told um, and I didn't see anyone doing that. What does accessibility mean to you? Good question. Accessibility means that technology works for all of us. And, um, and I think also accessibility is bigger than technology. It's certainly ICT, internet communications and technology, because it's got to be all the devices have to work. I have to have, you know, good internet connection. So the digital inclusion is part of it. Um, your software, your apps, your, you know, I mean, as you know, technology and communications has just changed and changed and changed and changed so much. But, but at the same time, also the built environment has to be accessible because if I can't go into a restaurant because I'm with a friend that's in a wheelchair, you know, I don't, I'm not going to go to that restaurant. So everything has to be accessible. And the good news about accessibility is when you make things accessible, um, it makes it accessible for everybody else. So when we started captioning videos and transcribing audio, um, the good news is that 80 to 85% of people watch videos with the sound turned off. Mm. So if you're captioning it, you're going to, whether you do open caption or closed caption, you allow me to turn it on and off. Maybe you don't want to see the text. Um, you're going to make that experience more beneficial to everybody else. And another thing that I learned about accessibility is, and I talk about this all the time, as we live our lives, my husband's a perfect example of that. We change, we change. And according to AARP, 46% of us over the age of 65 have disabilities. We don't see as well. We don't hear as well. We don't move as well. We don't concentrate as well. And also a lot of times older Americans feel that they just, something must be wrong with them. They just must be so stupid. They can't figure out how to use this technology when I don't believe that's true. I believe it is that the designers are not taking the time for a lot of different reasons, not all on them, um, but they're not taking the time to really make sure that technology is truly usable for all of us. And that means accessibility, but that also means somebody that is aged to a disability also can use your technology. So today with uh, Rue Global Impact, you work with Fortune 100 companies to help shape their efforts around um, the process and concepts of accessibility and inclusion for people with disabilities. When I think of the agility of companies like that, I get this vision of a thousand foot cargo ship trying to make a U-turn on a busy street in my neighborhood. 
And so tell me something that you've learned working um, with those kind of companies. Uh, tell me something that those companies don't understand when it comes to the work you do. Uh, what they still don't understand, and I do, I, I have been blessed to, I have some of the biggest customers that are some of the biggest corporations in the world. What we've evolved into over the last few years, we are talking about it from a much broader lens than just people than just people with disabilities. We're also talking about the intersectionality of diversity and how this is, and once again, this is not just about people with disabilities. This is about people that are aging into disabilities. This is about, you know, the African-Americans that might have a disability. So it's, it's all about inclusion. I use often the word inclusion, uh, diversity and disability inclusion. One thing I think that helped me get into these big corporations is that I come from corporations and I know how it works. I know how, even though you're a gigantic brand, a trillion dollar brand or a billion dollar or hundreds of millions, the reality is you still have a budget. You still have only a limited amount of resources and you still have other goals that you have to do. So one thing that I still think is happening is that I think most of these gigantic corporations still are not taking this seriously. Now I think it's, there's a shift happening, but I still think that um, they're they're looking at it more as a compliance. It's something they have to do instead of looking at it from the perspective of, first of all, society has expectations of you. Second of all, when you make things accessible and inclusive, it benefits all of your customers and it really benefits you. And so I think I've written about this. I've written three books, but my last book is Inclusion Branding. And I talked about this and I talked about it from – more and more societies expecting that you are going to include everybody in the workforce. You know, we're finding that when we hire a diverse workforce, they're actually more creative and innovative. So, and they're actually more productive. And wow, just look at that. We send everybody home, teleworking, and they're more productive. Wow, just think how much more productive they would be if the systems were accessible to them. I think technology needs to work for humans and we need to tie technology to humans and we need to make sure corporations and organizations of all sizes, all sizes, understand that why would you build anything that didn't include all of us? And, and every time you make things some, something accessible, it makes it more usable for us to use it. And the more we use it, the more we're going to love your products and the more we're going to support you. So I think we still are there, which is why it's so important that you're in the conversation, Chris, because you we need everybody in these conversations because we're not going to change society if we don't really take the time to reimagine what it could look like. Deborah, it's been an absolute treat to talk with you today. Uh, the work you do is so important and the community you support is so engaged and has come so far, but I know there's still a lot of work to be done. Um, and I would encourage everyone to get involved at either their business or in their community or even at a political level to help keep the ball moving forward. Um, but before I let you go, you mentioned earlier that someone painted a future of for your daughter, Sarah, that uh, she would at best be pushing carts at a grocery store. Can you tell me what she's doing today? They told me that Sarah would never be able to work in marketable um, positions and, you know, and, and they were wrong. 
the experts were wrong. And she actually did work for uh, 15 years for Nordstrom's. And she worked before that three years for Wendy's. So she was in marketable employment. But then then Sarah got sick and she got very sick. And she, she wound up having this rare disorder. It's a blood clot disorder, which I didn't realize it, but it runs in my husband's family. So she got very, very sick. So right now she's much, much, much better. She doesn't speak on stage with me anymore like she used to. I'm hoping she'll start doing that again because she's a wonderful speaker. She's talked on stage to audiences large as 5,000 people. She is, she's a beautiful little soul, but right now she's not working. But she moved out on her own, air quotes, because she's in a supported apartment, not living with her parents, which she loves. And she lives with another woman that also has disabilities, intellectual disabilities. And then she has a staff that supports them. So they come in and they help them with meals. They help them with grocery shopping. But my daughter is thrilled to be on her own. So she's very happy. And what more do you want for your children than for them to be happy? So she's thriving right now. She's really thriving. And it, it is, it warms my heart. Deborah's work has taken her around the world to help create programs, develop strategies, and implement processes that fully include persons with disabilities. It's a critical cause that I'd encourage everyone to learn more about. To learn more about Deborah and her corporate and advocacy work, please visit ruglobal.com. That's R-U-H-G-L-O-B-A-L.com. And listen to her podcast, Human Potential at Work, wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find her on Twitter and Facebook at Deborah Rue. You should also check out the Americans with Disabilities website, ada.gov. There you can find news, technical assistance materials, laws and regulations, and much more. You can find transcripts and links from today's show at scrappypod.com. And you can listen back to all the great stories from season one at the website or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, thanks for listening to Scrap. Is that just-